2: PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Edgy talk. Plain talk. Unrivaled talk. Mike Graham. The only radio show you can count on for a proper serving of good old-fashioned common sense. In search of the perfect debate. The independent republic of Mike Graham. On the app. On your smart
0: speaker. Talk radio and talk TV.
3: Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Uh, The haze is still with us, that's right. Uh, We are still hot are hot and hot Uh, but don't worry uh, because we've got plenty of ways of cooling down Uh, what i'm not going to do is make you any hotter i'm not going to make you any more frustrated i'm not going to make you any more crazed with absolute and utter indignation at how useless everything is Uh, although i do have to say the fact that we've now got an escaped prisoner on the uh, on the loose uh, who is apparently at large and is a terrorist but who apparently is of no danger whatsoever which is presumably why he's locked up in a category b prison i love the way that they describe how he escaped he was dressed as a chef. No, he was not dressed as a chef. He actually was a chef. He was working in the kitchen, in the prison. He wasn't dressed as somebody who was working in the kitchen. He actually was working in the kitchen. Apparently, uh, he clung on to the underside of a van and nobody spotted him. Well, goodness gracious me, Uh, if you can't run a prison and you can't run a border force, somebody said, by the way, he might be escaping across to France in a dinghy. Well, he's got no chance of doing that, has he? Because as soon as he sets foot in the English Channel, the Border Force guys will grab him and bring him back to Dover, because that's the only way they know how to do it. Or the RNLI will rescue him and bring him back. What are you doing? I'm escaping to France. No, no, come back this way. Come on, come on, we've got a nice hotel waiting for you. It's much nicer than uh, Wandsworth Prison. Off you go. Uh, It's incredible, isn't it? Quite remarkable. Rishi Sunak will get the blame for this, of course, because he's a bit unlucky at the moment, but he's made yet another U-turn on gender identity in schools. He says he's now not gonna make a law uh, that forces schools not to recognize people who come in as children who want to change their gender. Well, that's one thing. We've also got the greatest story of the day, uh, which proves me once again correct, there is a, um, an environmental uh, scientist, a climate change scientist, who has admitted, his name is Dr. Patrick Brown, uh, that he actually doctored a paper in order to get it published, and he left out salient points, interesting information, facts you might call them, uh, which would have gender, which would have made it impossible for people uh, to think that the fires were caused by anything other than climate change. Wildfires in California, he says, uh, were caused by a different management of the actual woods, uh, poor forestry management, and also, of course, arson. He didn't put that in the piece so that they would publish it. What does that tell you about these climate maniacs? It tells you that they are misleading people, they are denying the facts, and they are deliberately hiding the truth. And that tells you something about what they're doing. 0344 This is Isabel Shot. joins us first up. She's going to talk to us a bit about uh, the man who escaped from prison. She's also going to talk about rejoining EU's Horizon programme. Also, what about Suella Braverman? Uh, she says we shouldn't be handing thousands and thousands of visas for students to come to study here from India. I think she's absolutely right. But She's the Home Secretary. Why doesn't she just stop it? Oh three four 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 nine nine one thousand is the number. Rod Little is here as well. Loads going on. This is the Independent Republican Mike Graham. Let us get it on. I haven't even mentioned Birmingham Council, by the way. Lots of people have not go at me. Why are you just mentioning Birmingham Council? Well, I keep saying this is going to be a big story. It's going to be a big problem because the councils of this country are just as badly run, uh, if not worse, than the national government. Let's say a very good morning to Isabel Oakshot, Talk TV's international editor. Isabel, how are you doing this morning?
4: Morning. Um, well, there's no shortage of things to talk about, is there? I mean, I, mean where do you-
3: I don't know where you start. My favourite my favourite line is this idea that um, the escaped prisoner uh, from Wandsworth is going to get himself into a, a boat and try and get across to France. There's absolutely no way that they would allow that to happen. Uh, his name is Daniel Abed Khalif. Some suggestion that he might have connections to the Iranian government. Nobody's quite sure how serious his, his, his crimes were that he was accused of. Um, but extraordinary that you can get away out of Wandsworth Prison quite so easily, isn't it? Yeah,
4: I mean, it's really like something out of a movie, isn't it? Some cross between Shawshank Redemption and Paddington. Yes. You know, prison scenes and Paddington's in his uh, chef's outfit. It just reminds me of that. But actually very serious, as we've been discussing on earlier programmes on Talk This Morning, uh, with very, very grave questions to be asked about how he came to be able to do this. Um, and also this question mark over whether he has actually been working for a hostile state. Mm. Now, I understand from a very well-placed source this morning um, that there is credibility in that and that that hostile state is indeed Iran. Mm. I just want to caveat that with, by saying that I can't quote anyone on it, but it is a well-placed source. Um, and I think that is extremely concerning very young man um you know questions may be asked about his heritage and the selection process for going into the armed forces yeah. i think as of today the focus will of course be on the state of our prison services which we already knew were chaotic and this will be frankly uh, the tip of the iceberg mm. i'm sure there have been many many uh, near misses and other horrendous things that happen on a daily basis, frankly, Mm. that we don't hear about.
3: Well, we're told that certainly in this particular prison, the the prison um, warder, prison officer population is is depleted by about 30%, that they've only got really about 70% of the staff, which in effect probably means they've only really got 50% once you figure out sort of, you know, rotas and days off and holidays and all the rest of it. So they're probably operating on a very, very sort of shoestring type um, staffing arrangement.
4: Undoubtedly, and you forgot to add to your list um, of rotors and all the rest of it, um, sick leave. you know, yes. So many public sector workers uh, in common across the board, actually, it's not just the public sector, but are currently on incapacity benefits, a huge problem, actually, within the armed forces. Mm. And not always that people are literally off sick, but they're not sort of battle ready. Only a fraction of our um, already depleted armed forces are actually deemed fit enough to go into any kind of war. Right so very much the same is happening across the um hospital estate as well so uh, you know it, in a sense this has been brewing and a disaster waiting to happen but it's the sheer creativity of this escape that mm. i think captures the public imagination and also the fear of what else he might be planning i'm slightly surprised that he didn't just sort of see out his see out the process um in prison and the next stage of his of the judicial process because Frankly, given the state of our um, judicial process, he probably would have got off without um, so much as a of the trouble he's now going to be
3: in. Well, this is the other thing that people don't realise the, the, the extent of, which is that people tell me an awful lot of the time that uh, a, a suspect will turn up for a court hearing. and For some reason or other, the police officer in, in the case doesn't turn up. I mean, imagine in this case, if it is a terrorist suspect, then it might be slightly more high priority. But quite a lot of the time, the police officer doesn't turn up, case gets dismissed, the guy gets released.
4: So this is nothing new. I actually remember when I did jury service, mm. Probably about 15 years ago, exactly that happened. I don't believe in in my case that the defendant was just let off. It's just the whole thing was a complete waste of time. Everybody gathered, you know, as, as requested at whatever it was, nine in the morning, a full jury mm. selected. All the other relevant people there, the judge, and we all sat and twiddled our thumbs. And unfortunately, the relevant case officer didn't turn up. And that was that. And the whole thing was shelved to another day. And you wonder... Why on earth we have such a huge backlog in the courts? It's just one uh, of the many reasons uh, why things just back up.
3: Yeah, it really is unfortunate, isn't it? And, and ridiculous. But I mean, a lot of people today, this morning asking me the question uh, on Twitter and, and elsewhere on text messages as well. I mean, how does a, a terrorist suspect get access to a kitchen where there are loads of knives? And others saying, well, would you want him sort of running around behind you on a battlefield uh, or even a practice battlefield with a rifle?
4: so yeah i'm i am exercised by his entry into the british army um as i understand it he is british born yeah. so um perhaps you know there's a debate to be had and people will disagree on this as to whether or not we look too closely at someone's heritage you know i don't know what his heritage is uh the suggestion as i say from well-placed uh government sources is that, sorry, let me correct that, from a well-placed political source, is that he is associated with the Iranian regime in some way. Now, it may be that he's British-born, but I'd like to know about his parents. I'd like to know what checks were made when he was allowed into the army. Now, as you said earlier in your um, programme with Kev, uh, he wouldn't have had access as a very junior Um, member of personnel. He wouldn't have had access to to any secrets really. Um, So we again need to know how it was that he came to be able to get hold of anything that was of any use to anybody.
3: Yeah, exactly right. But, you know, no doubt we will be. I mean, I suppose, as we said on the, on, on the show before this one, the longer he stays out, the more difficult it will be to find him, I suppose. But um, I've got I've got a reasonably high hope that he will be found probably today and possibly within the next few hours. And don't, don't ask me why. I just feel as though, um, you know, something will be done, because the one thing once the security guys do get involved, it tends to be a little bit more well organised.
4: Well, do you know what? I'd love to share your optimism, but if he has duplicate passports traveling under a different name, I mean, I came back through Heathrow last night. It was an absolute zoo. Mm. You know, the idea that there is the capacity there to perform meticulous checks on all um, potentially duplicate passports to, to check fully for one individual, you know, needle in a haystack doesn't even cover it. So, I'm not sure, you know, who knows where the guy's gone. Probably the most dangerous thing for him would be to try to fly out of the country at this stage. It'd be nice to think that, Within hours, he will be back behind bars. Well, I'm not quite sure I share your optimism. Mm.
3: No, well, I mean, I'm just that sort of guy. I mean, if I, if I was so pessimistic uh, that everything didn't work and nothing was ever going to be any good, I think I might as well just ev- evaporate or, or uh, emigrate or go and live somewhere else, because that, that's kind of how you feel. But the other irony, of course, is that they've concentrated all of this effort on one guy who wants to leave the country. Meanwhile, uh, there's hundreds and hundreds of people coming into the country, and we don't know who any of them are.
4: Well, indeed. And as I say, I came back flew back in to Heathrow last night from the Gulf and the place was absolutely thronging. And the vast um, majority of that additional um, crowd was, according to those who work at Heathrow, associated with the start of the new academic year and huge numbers of foreign students, by the way, bringing their dependents entirely legitimately. Mm. Because this is what we allow. And we know from the last, uh, the most recent set of government immigration figures that the number of dependents and students coming in is absolutely skyrocketing. And the truth is that a lot of them just never leave.
3: Well, that's the thing. I mean, I was listening uh, to Michelle Donlan this morning being quizzed on our favourite um, uh, breakfast show you know, on the national uh, radio station known as B- uh, Radio 4. Uh, and they were very upset with her because the Horizon programme seems to have been reignited. Um, and they said to her, well, why aren't you allowing people to bring their spouses and their families with them if they're coming here to study some kind of scientific degree? And it's like, you know, well, sorry, you don't have a right to bring your entire family with you just because you're a student coming here. And this has raised its head again with Suella Braverman over the visas being given out to to Indian students who want to come here and who want to bring families with them as well, because it's so easily abused, isn't
4: it? It's absolutely ridiculous. You know, if I wanted to study in India, I wouldn't expect to bring my partner and the children trailing along. If I'm a young person studying, that's the decision I'm making. I'm going to go and do the degree or whatever it is. And come back again you don't expect to bring your granny and your auntie and all the rest of it right. I guess, and it my is
3: 40 a... brothers and you go oh really i didn't realize it's such a big family
4: i mean it is different of course if somebody is you know a very eminent scientist they're coming over on a fellowship you know there's a set period of time and it's sponsored by you know one of our best universities that's obviously a very different case mm. they're coming for a fantastic job not coming to just study something at some made-up course, at some, frankly, made-up college.
3: Yeah, exactly right. It's completely mad. Uh, Isabel, stay with us if you would. We've got to talk still about the dreadful state of our local councils. Birmingham Council now bankrupt, but don't worry, the chief exec's off on holiday for his 50th birthday in New York. Uh, We'll talk some more about the Pandora's box and the school closures that Gillian Keegan has had to deal with. Uh, It's all coming up. Plus, of course, Donald Trump apparently wants to debate um, the Duchess of Sussex, otherwise known as Meghan Markle. This is Talk TV.
1: On the
2: app, on your mobile, Talk Radio and Talk
3: TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. We're talking to Isabel Oakshot, Talk TV's international editor, and we've got plenty still to do uh, over the course of this show as well. Don't forget, we'll be looking for your views and we'll take your calls as well, 0344 499 1000. Uh, it might have come probably as no surprise to you, uh, this story, Isabel, because we all knew that there was a massive problem in an awful lot of the councils in this country, but Birmingham City Council, the largest council uh, in the country, some say the biggest um, council actually in, in Europe, Um just completely and utterly uh, badly organised, badly run, uh, now in so much debt that they've had to more or less uh, commit bankruptcy. Um, it's going to happen to a lot more councils, we're told as well.
4: Yeah, I mean, it feels like the bit like the falling down schools thing, doesn't it? As yeah. soon as you start looking at this stuff, I mean, in a sense, um, stories about councils with financial problems, um, they're pretty widespread, but just generally not picked up by the national media. So, you know, if you work on a local paper, any kind of local media, this is stuff that you follow. It's not very sexy uh, story-wise for the Nationals, unless there's a really big and egregious case like this one, uh, particularly yeah. with a cherry on top of uh, the boss going off on a nice swanky <laughs> holiday to New York. Um so, uh, you know, we were talking earlier on previous programmes on Talk this morning. Um, part of this is about the huge burden of social care, uh, something the government has still not sorted out. Wow. I know it keeps coming uh, in and out of the news over a period of years. And how many times have our viewers and listeners heard this government promise to sort out care for the elderly and yet nothing gets done? So that is one huge drain On resources, but the other, I'm sure, um, is just chronic inefficiency, Um, and it's something that I wrote about for the Telegraph a few days ago. You know, I see it in my area here um, in West Oxfordshire, incredibly affluent area, Mm. but frankly, uh, the roads. I've seen better roads in parts of Africa. Um, It's just a shambles, really, and you know, road repairs. This type of thing. Um, These fat cat contracts are allowed to massively overrun without any apparent penalty. uh, And the taxpayer has so little comeback uh, when they see their pretty expensive, by the way, council tax just being... Pondered.
3: Well, people are paying ludicrous amounts of money for council tax now. M- many people paying over two thousand a year um, just for the privilege of actually having somebody basically take your bins away, and that's about it. But they're now talking uh, if about.
4: You're lucky if you're lucky, by the way. I mean, I had an experience um, a couple of weeks ago on the on the Isle of Wight, where, by the way, second homers uh, like me are about to be clobbered with some kind of double council tax rate for the crime right. of having a holiday home there. Right. Um, and I mean, I- how
3: idiotic uh, is that?
4: Well, it's very unconservative. That's what I would say. I mean, you know, second homers uh, may get a bad rap because they're not there all the time. But because they're not there all the time, they're not using any of the council services. Um, So bins there aren't collected. If you put one little bag on top of your bin, Mm. even if your neighbour didn't put their bin out at all, so it's the same amount of rubbish, they won't take it away.
3: Well, I discovered this week, and perhaps I was naive to think that it wasn't the case, that not only are people paying to have their garden waste taken away to most councils now, but oh, yeah, more or less, yeah. it's all doubled. It's gone up by, you know, what used to be 25 quid is now 50 quid. What used to be 40 is now 80. Um, and they're actually charging you extra money. So it won't be long, I'm sure, before they start charging you money to just take your ordinary bin away.
4: Oh, absolutely. And then there'll be a new category. Maybe there's a new category for taking glass away or for those disgusting mm. food that everybody is encouraged to take my um my own garden waste license arrived this morning so um i can't remember quite how much it costs no doubt i'll be horrified when i see the sum of money that i paid out for it not to be taken uh, anywhere particularly efficiently yeah.
3: No, absolutely extraordinary stuff. Let's talk a bit about climate change, because we haven't done that yet. Uh, My favourite story of the day, maybe of the week, actually. Dr. Patrick Brown, co-director of the Climate Energy Team at the Breakthrough Institute in Berkeley, California, um, has admitted that when he wrote a paper about what the wildfires were doing in California and why uh, there was an increase in them, uh, he argued that climate change was the only reason. He's now admitted, basically, um, that he completely and utterly withdrew suggestions that it was all to do with poor forestry management and an increase in people starting fires deliberately. Both things that I've been banging on about ever since I heard that that was what happened in Australia, that was what happened in Europe, and that is what happens in almost every area where they have these wildfires. Unlike the Dale Vinces of this world, who are convinced that it's all about climate change, it isn't.
4: Look, I feel so strongly about this because this story just demonstrates everything that people like you And I and Richard Tice of the Reform Party and many other commentators Mm. on this uh, radio and TV station have been saying for such a long time, I am sorry if people don't want to accept it, but much of what we're told about climate change is very questionable and driven by vested interests. And we must be allowed to debate that. You know, I know Ofcom gets itself into a tremendous twiddle twaddle of um you know they get very stressed let's put it that way yes when anybody discusses openly questions around climate change but we must be allowed of course we must ask about this and, and this case just demonstrates why it is so important that people like yourself are able to hold up these uh, claims and allegations from those who think the world's about to spontaneously combust and subject them to some scrutiny. Now our side of the debate may not always be right, but neither is their side. And that's why it's so important that we're able to have the discussion.
3: It really is quite extraordinary because, you know, we've seen uh, what's going on in Skiathos at the moment in Greece, which is now floods. And of course, that's also the pull of climate change. And again, what they'll find is if they did any proper research or any proper actually examination of local areas where there's a lot more flooding now than there used to be. I bet you um, any money you like that you'll find that development of, of, of housing, you know, moving waterways from one place to another, you know, trying to shift water around, trying to make it go around buildings making new resorts. I mean, all of that has an effect on the way water runs through particular places. I know that because my own house in Wiltshire was flooded um, three times in one week back in 2001. I think it was Uh, nothing to do with climate change, everything to do with the fact that the farmer ploughed the field behind us uh, and the water ran down and ran off it like it was concrete. And you cannot make water go anywhere other than where it wants to go.
4: And that is a huge factor in flooding. It is industrial farming. I know a lot about this, having written a book on the true cost of intensive farming. What is happening is soil erosion. So the intensive use of monocultures, the same crops again and again and again are draining the resources and uh, the kind of underpinning of our fields. And the result of that is a load of runoff. Mm. So nasty stuff going into our rivers and waterways and guess what? Floods, because as you say, uh, if there's nothing trapping the water, then it simply does what gravity says it's mm. going to do. So this isn't about questioning the science or being a, you know, being a a, a flat earther. Um, this is about asking legitimate questions and bringing a sense of proportion mm. back into a debate that is, frankly, uh, all too often very, very hysterical. No,
3: exactly right. And this all started during COVID, it seems to me, where journalists were suddenly put under suspicion uh, and were sometimes even added uh, onto some kind of list of people who were, you know, perhaps ir- ir- irresponsible about reporting the news. No other time, but I've ever worked as a journalist, and you and I have been doing this a long time. Have I ever been told, well, "You can't say that," or "You can't make that argument," or "That's not right"? You know, our job is to question things. I don't care who you are. I don't care what you're telling me. I'm going to make you tell me exactly how you know that and what makes you right.
4: I I couldn't agree more. And as you say, we saw this during COVID where we kept on being told what the science Mm. says and we weren't allowed to ask certain questions or highlight certain fears or concerns. And there were plenty of scientists who disagreed with aspects of the approach and had um, really legitimate concerns, which, as time has passed... Uh, we have seen were very well founded actually i don't believe that we should be gagged on really any of these issues unless we're actually um you know promoting some hatred or inciting violence or any of those things and no one's going to argue Mm. uh, that journalists or broadcasters should be allowed to do that but we must be allowed to have debates over issues that are affecting every single one of us every single day because the net zero agenda which is based on uh, a lot of assumptions, is having a colossal effect on everyday life in this country and on the cost of living.
3: It absolutely is. Isabel, great to see you. Thank you very much indeed. Isabel Okshop, Talk TV's international editor. The reason that we talk about this stuff is because if you look at any net zero document, if you look at the energy bill that's been going through Parliament this week, you basically will see all sorts of re- references to climate change, all sorts of references to wildfires, to flooding, uh, to, you know, extreme weather events that haven't happened before. Well, I guess what? Maybe some of these extreme weather events are not caused by climate change. They're actually caused, as we know from our good friend Dr Patrick Brown, human intervention, changes uh, of ways that things are managed in terms of forestry and ways that buildings are put on a land that used to not be uh, filled with buildings. And somehow the water has to go somewhere. So, that is a simple argument uh, which pretty much knocks down anything that any of these scientists might have to say. This is Talk TV. Coming up, uh, we're going to go live down to Wandsworth Prison. We're going to talk to David Shipley about the problem in Wandsworth Prison. Uh, It's all coming next on Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Uh, Paul in Talkie says this morning, he says, My brother started as a prison warden last year. He couldn't believe his eyes. He should have had initial training for two weeks and that didn't happen. He was given the keys and told to wander around the landings looking for self-harm or people hanging in their cells. And that was in the first few days. The warders were gambling to see if my brother returned after his first shift. It's a running joke because most people don't return. He was put on the gatehouse with no training. That's how he escaped. Disgusting. He left after two months after it made him ill. Well, I mean, we can certainly see from uh, what we're being told about Wandsworth Prison, which is a pretty old prison, so old it had Ronnie Biggs in there. He managed to escape down a ladder and into a removal van. But we've got a man right there who can tell us what the scene is at the moment outside of Wandsworth Prison. Live, we've got Nick Ellaby, Talk TV's correspondent. Nick, a very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. Um, It's a very old prison. It's got Quite a sort of checkered history, you might say. Category B, though, a lot of people asking a question. Would there normally be somebody searching under a van with uh, things like uh, with mirrored uh, mirrors on the end of sticks, that kind of thing, to see whether somebody was there? Uh, Why was that not done? And and if it wasn't done, um, is it because there weren't enough people to do it?
1: Well, you're right to ask those questions about staffing, Mike. I actually have just spoken to a guy who works in the prison. He said he wouldn't tell me what he did or his name, but he was there at 7.30 yesterday morning. Daniel Khalif apparently escaped about 10 to 8. He told me the whole prison was put on lockdown at 8, and he couldn't get out until midday. I asked him about staffing levels as well. The local MP, Rosina Alin Khan, has complained about that. She's called it chronically understaffed. He told me the staffing levels seem okay, but there are rats running around inside the compound. I mean, you mentioned the building here. It's 172 years since it was opened. Ronnie Biggs escaped from here in 1965. There was a recent escapee as well in 2019, so serious questions there. But, uh, yeah, big questions about the state of the prison. Um, But also, why was this guy working in the kitchen? He's on, uh, on remand on terror charges. It's not been trialled yet, but uh, the guy I spoke to who works in there, he told me the kitchen is the least secure area of the prison. So Mm. how was that allowed to happen? What was he doing in a category B prison instead of category A like Belmarsh? And uh, did he have any help in escaping? clinging underneath that food truck if indeed that is how it happened
3: yes and i mean it's very clear i suppose that uh, he couldn't have done this all on his own even if for some reason uh, the escape was planned and and carried out with with no other uh, cooperation he probably has somewhere to go he would have been in touch with people outside of the prison i was listening to an expert this morning saying that that would normally be the case i think despite what we would like to think when people go into prison they probably do have contact with the outside world
1: Yeah, so a lot of those questions being asked, I'm sure, by the Justice Secretary, Alex Chalk. He's spoken to the prison governor. I'm sure he's going to be asking what they know and how this was allowed to happen. If he did this by himself, um, then, you know, it's an incredible achievement, really. But uh, those questions being asked about did he have any help? Why wasn't that van checked? How was he allowed to uh, get out of that kitchen and and escape? now it's 26 hours since he got out he's going to need a few things as you say he probably will need some help he's going to need a roof over his head he's going to need a change of clothes and he's going to need money and access to funds the Mm. police are actually saying the public could be the key to cracking this case they're asking anyone to call 999 if they see him not to approach him he's they say he's not really a, a dangerous man but you know this is a guy former former soldier wanted on terror charges and he's now been on the loose for over 26 hours mike
3: yeah, I mean, and so one would hope that somebody will have seen him somewhere. Um, but as far as the actual prison itself is concerned, have they changed the way they're doing anything today? Have they cancelled any visits? Have they done anything uh, in response to this escape?
1: Not that I can see. So as I, as I explained, it was on lockdown yesterday until around midday. The story didn't break until four, but we've been here all morning and we've seen lots of visitors coming in and out. So as far as here at Wandsworth Prison, it seems like business as usual today.
3: Absolutely, Nick. Thanks very much indeed. Nick Ellaby, Talk TV's correspondent, live from Wandsworth Prison, just outside it. There, you can see it uh, in the background. uh, A very old prison, uh, a place where, uh, as far as I'm concerned, many many people have said there aren't enough staff to look after all of the inmates in there. Uh, This particular individual was in the kitchen working there. A lot of people have raised eyebrows about the fact that he was a terror suspect. What was he doing, Uh, having access to knives and other kitchen implements? Uh, Let's talk to uh, David Shipley now. He's a consultant prison inspector who actually served. time uh, in hmp wandsworth as well so he knows what he's talking about david a very good morning to you
2: hi mike how are you
3: yeah very well indeed um tell us a little bit about the inside of uh, wandsworth prison what is it what's it actually like and what's the atmosphere like
2: as your your report just said it's a um a big old victorian building it is filthy. Uh, because it's it's poorly managed and understaffed, the basic cleaning activities don't really happen. So it's full of rats, it's full of rotting rubbish. Often the exercise yards were just full of rubbish. It no. so spe- rotted away for days because prisoners are thrown out their windows. Uh, it's so understaffed that the what they call the basic regime often doesn't take place. And this was true when I was there, and according to the latest HM Inspector of Prisons report, it's still true now. Right. And the basic regime is the idea that every day a prisoner should be allowed to have the time to have a shower, to have their cell door open so they can clean their cell right. and to get outside for a little bit of exercise. Those are the basics to keep, you know, hygiene and health.
3: Mm. And you've said in the past as well that it's so badly organised and, and, and badly managed, really, uh, that they lose track of prisoners inside the prison for, for sort of long periods of time. Where, where can they go where they're not sort of observed, if you like?
2: Yeah, I mean, it seems laughable, doesn't it? Because you think that the first job of a prison is to keep track of the, the people who are imprisoned. Right. But in my time at Wandsworth, it would often be the case that there was a lockdown for a period of time because a prisoner had gone missing. They would, when I was there, no one actually escaped, but often they would be on a different wing in another prisoner's cell for extended periods of time. Uh, And I think a lot of that is because Wandsworth is is so big, uh, has such a transient population of prisoners and is very understaffed. And what that means is you have officers who aren't always on the same wings. They're not really familiar with the faces and names of all the men they're supposed to be responsible for. And those faces and names change all the time anyway. So it's very difficult in that situation to actually have a handle on, is that guy supposed to be in that cell? I can remember one time when I was in uh, Bondsworth on A-wing, my cellmate had been sent off to court that day for for sentencing. And when they came to the checks of late afternoon, the, the officer looked and said, oh, Aren't there supposed to be two of you in here? And I said, oh, my cellmate's gone off for sentencing. I think he might be back later. And that was the end of the matter as far as I could see. There was no effort to to ascertain whether that was true or not. And certainly on the the paperwork this guy had, he thought there should have been two of us in a cell. So I think there's a general sloppiness as well at Wandsworth, which does mean this sort of thing happens a lot.
3: Yes. I mean, it is incredible, isn't it? And as far as Daniel Khalif's ability to find his way into the kitchen uh, to work either as a chef or just as some kind of a um a a sort of an an assistant of some kind how easy is it to to get that kind of duty because many people have said to me if you're a terror suspect should you really be allowed access to a place where you could get knives where you could get any number of other sort of implements
2: yeah i think that's exactly right the um prisons do lots of jobs in prisons and the some jobs are more desirable than others. The kitchen job is one of the most desirable because you get loads of time out of your cell, you get your pick of food, and you can often get extra food, which you could trade with other prisoners for whatever. Right. Uh, it's also one of the jobs where you have the closest access to outside the prison because food deliveries come in every day. Mm. And those lorries drive into prison and then are unloaded by, by the kitchen workers and then they drive out again. Mm. What that means is the security department in the prison should be very conscious of who is allowed to take that job. And if someone is a flight risk, they should not be anywhere near the kitchen. Right. Job. So I think that's a very specific question. And He here, was so.
3: supposed to be a flight risk. Was he not?
2: I, I'm not. I mean, well, it, that's he, it what I'm I mean, surprising what I, if he wasn't. Yeah.
3: But. I'm reading this morning that he was deemed to be a flight risk and that was why he was denied bail. And that's why he was on remand in Wandsworth prison in the first place.
2: If that's the case, it is crazy that he was in the uh, in the working in the kitchens mm. uh, because it's the kitchens and the stores are probably the two parts of the, of the prison that have the most most contact with outside right. and with, from which an escape would be easiest. Yes.
3: And, I mean, is it – I mean, I, I, I guess unless you've actually tried doing it yourself, um, I, I would imagine hanging un, underneath a um, – we, we know that some migrants used to sort of get across um, in the Eurotunnel by clinging onto the underside of a Eurostar, which sounds incredibly difficult to me. I mean, I'm assuming uh, from his pur- for his purposes, clinging onto the underside of a lorry must be pretty hard to do as well.
2: I mean, I've never tried it either, but I, I can't imagine it's, it's a lot of fun. But this is a young, healthy, fit man a yeah. soldier – and also you've got to remember Wandsworth prison isn't in the middle of nowhere yeah uh, it's it's in the middle of Wandsworth yes. so uh, all he would have to do is go a couple of minutes down the road and then drop off and roll away yes and and disappear into the into the crowds of south west london yeah uh, it, it's not like it's a prison out in the countryside where he has to get miles and miles away before it's obvious where he is. And was
3: it a frightening place to be, would you say, Wandsworth Prison? I mean, is it... Because, I mean, we hear many stories, and without being in there, it's hard to judge, you know, that there are gangs in many prisons, that there are many people who, you know, are are dangerous and who uh, will will kind of uh, victimise you if they feel that they can. There are are gangs of of, of sort of Islamic terror types, and then there are other gangs of of maybe drug dealers. There are drugs available. What What was it actually like? to be in there
2: i think those are very much the things i was afraid of before i went to prison and in a strange way those aspects weren't as bad as i feared i think if you aren't involved in gang activity and aren't involved in drugs mm. it doesn't have to be part of your life in prison okay. i think the greatest danger i experienced to my health and, and life and, and that of my fellow prisoners was actually from the the way the prison operated uh, healthcare is withheld absolutely until the moment of crisis uh there were times when i you know i saw a a man collapse on A-wing and a wing and a group of prison officers stood around not giving him cpr and just waited for an ambulance to turn up i think about 40 minutes later yeah. so there's a there's an institutional disregard for life and health which i think is is probably far more dangerous and that combined with the Kind of crushing monotony of locking men in in a cell for twenty three hours a day with nothing to do but stare at the walls or stare mm. at the TV, rather than giving them purposeful mm. work or education, which would actually make you know making good use of their time in prison. I think that is is a huge uh, threat to life yes. and, and safety in prison.
3: Well, maybe this will put a, a focus on that as well. David, thanks uh, for talking to us. Uh, David's got a piece in the Spectator today. Uh, we'll put that out there for you so you can read it. Uh, all about why he thinks that this was an accident literally waiting to happen because Wandsworth prison is so badly run so terribly managed and so insecure that he's more surprised that people haven't done this before. Daniel Khalif still uh, at large, still on the run. Uh, we're told that there is a um, a helicopter up at the moment uh, in some parts of uh, a couple of parts of south-west London. Um, so it may well be that that's what that is going on. Uh, we'll keep you updated as everything comes in to us as we get it. Uh, obviously, the advice from the police is still that if you do see Daniel Khalif, and we'll be publishing his picture soon. Um, You do not approach him. Uh, You simply call uh, for the police. You call 999. Don't do anything stupid. This is Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. We've got another two hours to go. We're into the second hour of the show and we've already been absolutely knocking it out of the park for the first hour. We need more of your calls. I apologise if I didn't get to them all, uh, but do keep them coming because you are the lifeblood of this show. Don't forget, we tell you the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And an awful lot of that truth comes from you. We just heard just before the news from a prison officer, former prison officer, who said basically only about 40% of prisons now in this country are actually run by by what used to be known as the Prison Officers' Union. Lots of it's been privatised, lots of it is run badly. Wandsworth Prison in particular uh, would appear to be operating with about 70% of the staff that they actually need. That is how uh, it would appear uh, that this man, uh, Daniel Abed Khalif, managed to escape uh, dressed as a uh, kitchen worker from the prison uh, by clutching himself uh, or attaching himself to the underside of a van delivering food. Uh, He's now out and about, he's now on the run, Uh, he's still at large. If you do see him, uh, police advice is to please do not approach him. Uh, just call the police and tell them where you think he has been and where he is. And that's as simple as that. We'll keep you updated with any developments on that story as, of course, it comes through. Uh, not enough prison staff, not enough police, not enough nurses. The only area we are not sure of is illegal migrants, says Don in Chelsea. But I think there's some truth to that. Uh, let's talk to Ben Parlow, climate researcher and writer, because um, a fascinating story has come across our desks this morning. And it is, of course, the one about a climate scientist who has admitted overhyping the impacts of global warming and climate change on wildfires in order to get a paper published uh, in a science journal, which is thought to be genuinely pretty prestigious, called Nature. This guy's name is Dr. Patrick Brown. We talked about it in the last hour. He's the co-director of the climate and energy team at the Breakthrough Institute in Berkeley, California. He is basically admitted to doing what I have said people have been doing for a very long time, which is falsifying Uh, data, telling lies, uh, obscuring facts, and not bothering to mention that most wildfires are actually caused by arsonists and a combination of arson and bad management of the forestry around those wildfires. And that has been changing for years and years and years. Let's talk to Ben uh, about it and find out what's going on. Ben, a very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. Thanks I mean, for having me. I don't like to say I told you so, but I told you so. Uh, and this is exactly <laughs> what we've been saying has been happening. This is exactly why uh, we have been fighting this fight, because we want to get at the truth. You know, if you can prove to me that, you know, the, the climate is, is heating up and causing places in around the world to spontaneously combust, then fine. Prove it to me. But this is obviously proof that that's not what's happening.
0: Well, I think it's certainly an indication. I think he may put it a little bit strongly with, with, with lies and so on. And I, I think that the, the researcher, Patrick Brown, I think he shares your frustrations. And, and that, that's a frustration with academia and the world of academic publishing. And, and, and that and that's, what's, that's what's moved him to, to uh, produce this report, uh, because the reports that he produced earlier, which they're not denial of climate change being either a fact or a problem. Um, but they were they were they were not quite consistent with the political narrative uh, of of climate emergency. Yeah. So they were they were sort of put maybe put like the dampening it down a bit, cooling it down a bit. Um, and 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 he struggled to find uh, anywhere to publish those. Report. So he said he wrote this and deliberately omitted all of the alarming, uh, or uh, sorry, the non-alarming context, Mm. um, and 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 just had this very, uh, you know, uh, this headline kind of claim running through his his work. Um, and, And and then of course Nature published that. But we've known about this kind of thing for a very long time. I mean, we know we know, for example, that wildfires across the world. We know thanks to NASA. And um, um, their satellite co- coverage—that there are about 20, 20% fewer by, by land area. Mm. There's 20% fewer wildfires, and we also know that there's something wrong with uh, scientific publishing, or, or where, where you know where scientists put their work, and this becomes the repository of of science. Um, we've known that since the 1990s, after uh, two sort of jokers, really, um, uh, Alan Sokal and Jean Brickmont. Um, published literal nonsense in journals um, uh, a, a postmodern gibberish, I think, was the was the, was the term, um, and and then uh, because it seemed to have a political dimension that the, the 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 editors of these journals agreed with, they just they just they published it, and then a few years ago, Helen Pluckrose and James Lindsay ha- have done the same thing with woke. They 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 wrote some fake papers that were complete postmodern nonsense, um, and but they but they seemingly agreed with the uh, the political slant of those seemingly uh, science based or, or, or research based uh publications mm. um so and th- and now we have patrick Brown's effort so we know that there's a bias in institutional science and scientific publishing for a long time and and i w- and i would point out like kind of if you if you if patrick brown was was to start his academic career now of course he wouldn't get a job no. And right, that's the because, point, uh, because uh, let's not forget,
3: Ben, that this is not just about, you know, what is published in papers. It's about the media's general kind of reaction when something like the Rhodes wildfires story happens, because the coverage yeah. of that was out of all proportion uh, to what was actually going on. You know, in the same way that in Pakistan, when parts of Pakistan flooded and there was a general narrative going around, which was being published by the BBC, that a third of Pakistan was underwater. Absolutely. Crap, quite frankly, it wasn't true. Similarly, in Rhodes, a very small part of the island uh, was on fire. But if you had listened to anything on the BBC or anything that it was written in some newspapers, you would have thought that the world was on fire because you and I were driving around London in Harley-Davidson's.
0: That's right. They're really keen to put every single image they can get hold of and turn it into evidence of the climate emergency. And they will use that term. They'll say, here is the climate emergency right in front of your cameras. And they pay no attention to yeah. those facts that like you mentioned that 80 percent of, of, of wildfires in the United States are started by people yeah. in the UK. It's slightly lower. It's still it's 50 percent. Mm. So the problem really is man-made. Yeah. But it's lunatics. Right. And, and many of them actually turn out to be environmentalists going around trying to, 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 to stir this, this problem? Well, yeah, up. I mean, we um, certainly
3: know for sure that they arrested a bunch of people in Rhodes. They arrested a bunch of people in other parts mm. of Europe where fires had started. They've done the same in Australia. They've done the same in California. Uh, the latest one was Canada, wasn't it? And they'll probably do it in Hawaii. You know, but isn't it a funny thing that suddenly now uh, all TV companies are interested in uh, is some latest weather, uh, extreme weather event that they can publish on the basis that you know sort of nudge nudge wink wink we know why this
0: is happening don't we it's all about climate change yeah well a number of the um, less reputable uh, broadcasters and the one we were on now I would suggest thank you very much um, have signed up to an agreement (laughs) to put the climate narrative into everything not just the weather forecasts The news agenda even soap opera plots they've said we're going to we're going to put this narrative in to everything across our whole output so that people get the message and and that that's that's having a, a very similar effect to this bias that we see in academic publishing and academic science it's just it's messaging 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 and then and then that leaves people like us who think there should be a a robust do- debate about about the de- very far-reaching policy. Mm. Really, like, policy that's going to completely alter our lives. That's got to be debated. Yeah. You can't well, keep of hiding course. behind well, science I mean, we, we, We've
3: got this week uh, the Energy Bill going through Parliament. We discussed it in the last couple of days as well. A lot of people concerned about some of the things in it. My personal view is that the, the, the stories, the scare stories about, you know, people are going to be locked up for having the wrong kind of boiler um, isn't going to happen. It's not going to be a reality. But it's part of what we now know to be the kind of nudge unit-inspired yeah. a, a sort of behavioural science that people want us to look at, because they'll go, oh, well, if you tell people that we might be putting them in prison, they'll probably get rid of their gas boiler. That's what they're doing.
0: Yeah, it's fr- frightening, frightening. Uh, I, I find the prospect of these quite stupid MPs making these mm. kind of laws with very little consideration of the facts or, or the consequences, yeah. frankly, um, I find that a far more terrifying prospect than slightly different weather right you know what 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 are they really what are they really trying to achieve mm-hmm. here uh, because it's it can't be it can't be solving the climate change it can't be saving the planet because we know although there might be global warming and there might be some degree of climate change there isn't a climate emergency, right? There's a big gap between the science mm. and the policy. Yeah. And that's that's this weird kind of green ideology that seems to have infected the whole of the political establishment in the UK, um, who was determined to take this... That, you know to, to take this crusade on, yeah. but they don't want to. They don't want to have a scientific debate, which we can now see is is perfectly necessary, yeah. absolutely necessary. And they don't want to say, well, well, what would you rather? Would you want us to save the polar bear? You know, if it's true, do yeah. you want us to save the polar bear, or, or do we need to keep the lights on? Yes, um, how, you know, we, we need to take part in those conversations mm. about. What what we save and what we don't save if the floods really are rising. Yeah. Um, scientists turn out to be as venal as any other, you know, any other category mm. of career. Uh, 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 that there is
3: absolutely right and they are obviously interested in making a living and they are obviously uh, aware of the fact that if they have the wrong beliefs in the wrong types of views uh, they won't get the funding that they would like to get and so that is the trick isn't it because there's all sorts of funding available if you want to go on and on about how green we need to be and how we must improve the way we live and how we must absolutely um, you know campaign endlessly for, for net zero you'll get plenty of money. But if you start saying the opposite and going, hang on a minute what exactly are you going to gain by going to net zero? Apart from, you know, charging people an awful lot more money to drive their cars, uh, telling people that they have to get particular types of heating, you know, you get no funding at all. Uh, certainly not from the government. But I mean, I've been having an, uh, a little interchange with Dale Vince this morning, the owner of Ecotricity, the owner also of uh, uh, Forest Green Rovers, um, who's put out a, a very a, a video that I've seen, you've probably seen it as well, of the floods in Skiathos in, uh, in Greece. Mm. And he's basically accusing uh, myself and Julie Hartley Brewer of coming up with some climate denial fairy tales to explain it away and say, how is it not possible that it's uh, climate change? Well, at the end of the day, lots of floods happen because of a change in the use of land. Lots of floods happen because people build holiday resorts in places where there didn't used to be anything. They cut down trees where there used to be trees. You know, you can't mess about with the way the land actually is managed and expect the land not to come back at you.
0: That's right. I would say that every extreme weather event that we've seen in Europe that and in, in America, in the, in the developed world, as it were, in the last 20 or 30 years. That's just been... It's not extreme weather. It's policy failure. Yeah. I, th- and I, I remember re- relatively recently, um, I think TfL or the mayor or someone put out a picture of a, of a, of a flood on one of London's bridges. Yes. Now, the only way you can have a flood on a bridge over a river... Um, is 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 if you've had an engineering failure, mm. if someone hasn't thought through, where's all the water going to go? Because they had these, they had these um, barriers to, yeah. to 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 protect the, the cyclists or whatever. So yeah, the, 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 it's a mistake. It's a category error. It's a it's a it's a fallacy to believe that a flood mm. is the result of purely meteorological uh, a, a phenomenon. Actually, it's but it's poor poor water management. Yes. And this is something we've been ra- wrestling with. And I, I think you sort of alluded it to it earlier. Um, a, 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 at some point, a lot of these, uh, the, the people that dominate the the, the regulators, the agencies, mm. not necessarily the government itself, but they decided that, that it was often better to let nature take its course yeah. than for us to start managing water. And this had terrific, uh, pow- powerful effects. Um, I think causing floods in the southwest. A lot of people were were suggesting that the mismanagement of the water was uh, based on these sort of green Mm. rules that you should let nature do what it wants. Um, uh, We're we're, we're causing these floods. But then, of course, everyone says this is climate change. So it's it's kind of like this sort of uh, really bizarre circular reasoning. I Um, mean, if you build
3: uh, a housing estate on what used to be a field, I don't care where you're doing it, where you've got a load of concrete, you've got a load of tarmac, You've got an awful lot of water going in and out of the uh, of the of the buildings themselves because there are now people living there. You've increased mm. the water flow. Uh, you've changed the way that the, the earth is able to, um, you know, kind of uh, absorb the water that falls from the sky. Are you really seriously not going to tell me that you think something
0: might change about the way the water runs around it? Yeah, I mean, we, we can. There are stuff you can do. You can raise the level of the ground before you build the stuff. Yeah, and 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 you can build. Uh, you, you can build flood defenses. You can build catchment areas. There's all sorts of stuff. This stuff was mastered. Two hundred years ago, and then it improved and it improved and it improved. But then suddenly, we, we we started to take a much more lax attitude towards um, where we put our, where our our houses. Probably because uh, uh, people were trying to build them more cheaply and 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 uh, you know just sort of dump a bunch of people there and not really consider their mm. needs. Um, so so yeah, I I I mean I don't think the problem is fatal. Like kind of you can, you know many of the, our be- our loveliest cities are floodplains. Oxford, uh, York. Uh, uh, and and London itself. I mean, it's it's extremely low lying, and it's uh, at, the, at, the, at the edge of an estuary. Um, but we, we we worked out how to live with it, and much of it's uh, below. You know. Uh, much of a, 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 many capital cities, including Amsterdam, is, is below mean sea level. So, so you know, th- it's perfectly possible to, to live with that. But you have to have maintenance. Mm. You have to treat a city of, those si- of that kind of size, um, in that kind of position, as a machine that needs constant supervision. And this is why um, Katrina in i think 2004 became the icon of climate change unnecessarily because that that was i mean it was a a relatively large storm but all of the damage was caused by the fact of uh, of policymakers mm. failing to ensure maintenance yeah. and this is what this is what most climate events, most extreme weather events, most catastrophic events are actually caused by it's not it's got very little to do with the weather and if you look at the weather statistics um, they haven't changed dramatically at all um, in line with with global warming and, and what they call climate change um, but they become icons of of the political agenda. all all the same. Absolutely right. Ben, good to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed, Ben Powell, climate researcher and writer. Uh,
3: On the news that I'm not surprised about, but some of you may well be, uh, Dr. Patrick Brown, uh, who is with the Breakthrough Institute, saying that basically he published a paper about what caused the wildfires in California, but he left out the salient details that it was mostly arson and the change in management of the forestry, because he knew if he put that in, nobody would publish the paper, because they're not interested in the truth. We are. We are the home of the truth. We are the home of common sense. This is the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. We'll take some calls coming up.
4: Across the UK, online and on DAB, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.
3: If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say.